Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Taken, Noam Perry always saw her father as a hero, but never more so than now. The 79-year-old peace activist saved his wife by fighting back when Hamas broke through their door on Saturday and started taking hostages. It's now been five days since anyone has heard from him. Get wells soon. A scathing new report calls out Alberta's energy regulator for its cozy relationship with the oil and gas industry, which has prevented the cleanup of tens of thousands of inactive wells across the province. Twice shaken, just a few days after an earthquake hit western Afghanistan, people in Harad are hit with another. An aid worker there tells us there is no way to know just how long the recovery could take. Rude Awakening, marking 10 years since the release of a song that just left your head for the first time in nine years, and which will wriggle back in when I say it's a song that asks the musical question, why you gotta be so rude? Why indeed, Chris, it's not that bad. Armchair critic, our guest says there's a good reason why a chair teetering atop a dilapidated house has become such an object of fascination, because it's balanced in that sweet spot between silly and sublime. And clandestine operation. A group of students in Scotland were stunned to find a hidden stash of centuries-old silver and bronze coins that may have belonged to a 17th century Scottish clan chief. As it happens, the Wednesday edition. Radio that will refrain from making a coiny joke. It's been five days since Chaim Perry was taken. The 79-year-old is one of dozens of Israelis who were kidnapped by Hamas militants as they stormed through towns and villages on Saturday. Mr. Perry was taken from the kibbutz Nahal Oz, where he and his wife lived for more than 60 years. It's just a few hundred meters from the Gaza border. His family is pleading for his release. Noam Perry is Chaim's daughter. We reached her in Tel Aviv. Noam, how, how have you made it through these past five days? I am I'm not the hero here myself. I think my parents are the heroes and the whole community in Kibbutz near Oz that was devastatingly affected in this Black Saturday. Dozens of terrorists invaded the kibbutz, started butchering the residents. You said your parents are the heroes here and you certainly want the focus to be on them. I believe your your mother is with you, but she managed to escape yeah. because of your father's actions in those terrifying moments. What has she told you about what happened on Saturday morning? So the terrorists invaded the kibbutz. They heard the shooting. They were hiding in their house for hours. And they heard the terrorists coming into the house and, and uh, breaking everything and ruining the house and searching for the shelter they were hiding in, the safe room they were hiding in. Eventually, they found it. They found the safe room and tried to break it. And then when they managed to break it or almost managed to break it, my father, um, he, he did something uh, brave. He like opened the door quickly and pushed the terrorist away. And the terrorist actually was got scared and ran away to get more people with him. And yeah, my father did it with his own bare hands because he was unarmed in his house. And he managed to, to scare the terrorist. The terrorist ran away for, I don't know how many, two, three, five precious minutes in which my mother was able to hide in the safe room. Where did she hide? Just... You know, a few feet away, it was dark because there was no electricity. 
the terrorist has has shot everything so that there was no electricity it was dark and i think it, it helped <laughs> she was able to hide they came back and and she was able she was very close but you know she kept her breath and she could hear the terrorist telling my father in english that he should not resist be, because they don't want to hurt him and then they took him away they said they don't want to hurt him yes how has your mother been dealing with these days these last five days my mother is amazing i don't know how she do it but everything that she do is helping other people from the kibbutz she went like collecting the names and the people and make sure making sure everyone is there and she is now talking to all the families of those who are not there and also the survivors from Neroz they have nothing they have nothing it's hard to understand the terrorist has ruined everything they burned houses they broke everything people left the kibbutz with nothing in their pockets most of them don't have even the wallet let alone clothes or anything so they have a lot of work uh helping helping these people so my mother is like she's she devoted for for this since uh the army has has found her does she remember anything else that hamas said when they burst in apart from those few words in english that you mentioned this is what they said mm-hmm. and then they walked away with my father since then we don't have any information of what happened with him we haven't heard anything from him obviously nor from hamas nor from any other humanitarian organization in gaza and with him a lot of other elderly and kids and people that really needs medications and treatment to survive in addition to building this kibbutz decades ago your your father is also a peace activist he was working yes he would work to help people in gaza the kibbutz as we've said before on the program is is right at the border what kind of work was he doing and yeah. why why is that work important to him he volunteered in in uh organization of israeli people that were willing to drive sick people and kids from gaza to get treatment in hospitals in israel when they called him he would come to the border and and drive people to hospitals to get care and he was also a man of art he had a gallery in the fields of israel and uh he really believed in human spirit and it's hard to think that a man like this is is being kept in i don't know what conditions why do you think hamas i mean why is an impossible question to answer but i wonder if if <laughs> well, you've played that in your head yeah why Yeah. And what do you say to them? I say to them there there couldn't possibly be any reason that can justify yeah. these kinds of actions. How are they holding up? <laughs> They're seeing their grandma uh uh holding up and helping other people and they're trying to do the same. <laughs> But it's it's not easy for them yeah. as well. Well, I was quite um moved Well, also as I listen to you now but certainly during the news conference uh you have a lot on your shoulders and you were um very clear and composed and I know you said you're not a hero but that's a that's a difficult thing to do under these circumstances thank you we we feel the obligation to do everything that we can to help my father what message you know do you want to send to other countries the international community but also the Israeli government about what yeah. you want to happen next The thing that I want most is to see my father back, of course. Being as much practical as I can, my first ask from the international community would to would be to pressure and to ask all humanitarian organizations that are working within Gaza to make every possible effort to meet the kidnapped people the civilians and and see their conditions and supply medicines we we've passed today earlier today a list of medications to the red cross and we we want governments to do whatever possible they can to pressure 
both Hamas and and also to 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 act through every channel they can to get to those kidnapped people. Noam, thank you for being generous with, with your time. Please take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please do whatever you can to publish this in the way that will help him. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. We reached Noam Perry in Tel Aviv. Gaza's lone power plant ran out of fuel today, leaving generators as the territory's sole source of power. And with fuel for those generators in short supply, it's only a matter of time before Palestinians living there are entirely without electricity. That's one of many factors that make it difficult to get a clear picture of what's happening in the region. But social media users like Plestia Al-Akkad are doing what they can to fill that gap. Ms. Alakad is a 22-year-old journalist living in Gaza who's been posting frequent updates about her own family's daily life on Instagram. The sound alone helps bring the reality of the frequent Israeli air and artillery strikes home. During court times, all the neighbors, they just leave their doors open so you can just enter your neighbor's house. It's okay. For my neighbors, they didn't evacuate as well. They have their windows down. Here are their windows. And here is the family. They're gathering all together also in a place far away from the wind. I was trying to explain things, but I think you can hear them now. I'll go check on my parents. That's the view from the balcony. There is literally <coughs> no view. You can't see anything. I'm trying to explain the situation, but I don't know what to say exactly. The more I walk, the speechless I get. Hello everyone, it's around 4 p.m. here in Gaza. The situation is just getting worse. There are literally no words to describe what's happening. No electricity, no water, no internet. Like almost 90% of Gaza, they don't have connection. We can't even call each other. Uh, there is no internet, as I previously said. Like I literally have a little bit, a little, a little, little bit of internet. At any minute, like whole, maybe like all of Gaza won't have any electricity or any water or anything. Like, the situation just feels so unreal. I hope that won't be the last update I'll post. I'm trying my best to keep the world updated, but, like, that's all what I can do with the, giving the situation, the circumstances, the internet, the electricity. Anything um, may bomb at any minute, so it's really difficult. Sound from a few of journalists Plestia al akads recent videos from Gaza. According to the local health ministry in Gaza, more than 1,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli strikes and more than 5,000 are wounded. For the second time in less than a week, villagers in Afghanistan are combing through the rubble of an earthquake. This morning's 6.3 magnitude quake struck just south of the city of Herat, and it came just three days after one of the region's deadliest earthquakes in decades left more than a thousand people dead. Entire villages were razed, and medics at the region's already full hospitals say newly injured people continue to arrive. Philippe Kropf works with the World Food Program. He's on the ground in Herat. That's where we reached him. Philippe, you were certainly there as this most recent earthquake hit. What did it feel like in those moments? Um, I was sleeping. I was in bed. Uh, Everything shook. I jumped under the desk that I had prepared for that mm. and after uh, I evac- evacuated the building um, need to say uh, most of the Herati families are already living out in the 
open air because of the previous um, earthquake. Already after, exactly, like everybody has basically taken up camps inside of the city parks, in gardens, along the roads, because there has been some damages, and people are terrified of these aftershocks or even new earthquakes. So as dire as it is and how difficult it must be for them to, to be sleeping outside, in this case, it, it helped them, it sounds like. I believe so, and I believe it is what authorities have advised the people to do. Um, most families sleep in little pop-up tents that they usually will be using for weekend picnics. So it's not some kind of like uh, really strong mountaineering tents or something. This is just really very flimsy tents, and it is getting already quite cold at night. And um, yeah, everybody is afraid. What kinds of stories have you been hearing from people? You know, you mentioned the fear and the realities that they're dealing with right now. But in terms of specific cases and specific families, is there anything you can share? So if we go to Zindajan district, which is the area most affected, um, there's these villages, they are completely raised to the ground. Like literally they are rubble, what will be sticking out of the rubble in many cases is the door frame and the door and everything else is flattened um, sometimes you still will see possessions of people under the rubble uh, maybe there's a painting that's still hanging or a poster but it's it's uh, quite immense the damage that has been done in this first earthquake mm-hmm. um, people are camping in different tents than in the city but like in emergency tents that have been distributed but literally they're still there where the earth shook and everything so everybody i've talked to in the past two days they have buried uh family members Mm. three four seven um we had this one gentleman sitting on the rubble of his home he said he lost three children Mm. his wife was pregnant she lost her baby and she is now in critical condition in herat hospital and he was just still sitting there basically not knowing what will come next and these are stories that are repeated dozens hundred times probably thousands times uh, we also met a young man who just came back from Iran. Uh, Herat is an area where there's a lot of migrant labor, poor region already struck by the uh, climate crisis and by the drought. So many people rely on work outside. They come home to the village and they find nobody survivor anymore, or maybe still one survivor, but their family has been crushed. Are there rescue mission still underway i mean is there is there still hope of finding survivors so i'm no search and rescue specialist but i could see that there is still some heavy machinery in the disaster zone but my understanding is that most of the search and rescue is over however today we did uh, walk past uh, rescuers who were carrying the body wrapped in a blanket um from somebody who perished so still ongoing but right now we are focusing on the survivors Mm -hmm. and how we can and need to support them philip i know this is the work you do obviously and this is probably not the first disaster zone or catastrophe you've seen but are you okay how are you how are you dealing with everything um i think i'm fine Mm -hmm. i definitely haven't started uh, processing yet but i'm just focusing on work Mm -hmm. Um, we also I want to say that it's the national colleagues who have their families here, who have families camping outside or do not know uh, how their families are doing, who are doing the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. standing out there, giving out the food to the people in need. We did 500 families today. 500 families received the full month ration today. So aid is getting through the, 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 the food that you mentioned, the rations, the tents, um, is the aid coming quickly enough, Philip? The first responders are always the neighbors and the villagers. Um, we see a large solidarity mm-hmm. within the communities in Afghanistan. We see people helping each other. So what we are doing comes on top of that, supporting communities. Um, it is absolutely coming in. Emergency assistance is here. Our donors have given us the green light to use food that we have in the country already. 
But we do need to say this crisis is a crisis on top of a crisis when 15 million people are already going hungry Mm -hmm. and we only can assist 3 million of them. And if we look into the future, emergency food assistance will not be good enough for these communities who have lost all their livelihoods, whose lives have been destroyed. And that takes a longer uh, action, resilience work, uh, development work that will take like many years also to help these families to look after themselves. Is is that message of how much need there is and long-term need there there will be, is that message getting through? Uh, and I ask that because of everything else that's happening in the world right now uh, and, and the other people that, al- that also need help. Uh, are you concerned that that message isn't being heard as quickly as you need it to be? I think it's a combination of factors. Like this year, we've never had more people globally in need of humanitarian assistance for survival. All these crises across the world where people need support. And we as humanitarians, we don't play one crisis against the other. Mm -hmm. Human suffering is the same everywhere. Is it in Gaza? Is it in Israel? Is it in Ukraine? Is it in Afghanistan or in the Horn of Africa? People are suffering. They need support. This is not about politics. This is about helping families, helping people. So... We just can hope that the world will step up and not forget about uh, the Afghans. Philip, I appreciate your time. Please take care. Thank you so much, Neil. Much appreciated. Philippe Kropf works with the World Food Program in Afghanistan. We reached him today in Herat. Stashed away in one of my drawers, you will find a box of stray coins, some Japanese yen, some euros, a few loonies, toonies, and nickels, and a handful of tokens from the video arcade in Virgil, Ontario, which probably closed in the 90s. My unintentional coin collection is pretty useless and almost worthless. But the same cannot be said for a recent find made by a group of archaeology students at the University of Glasgow. During an excavation in the Scottish Highlands, they uncovered a rare collection of coins hidden deep beneath a fireplace, minor, just in a drawer, coins that they believe belonged to a clan chief more than 300 years ago. Eddie Stewart is the excavation director and a PhD student. We reached him in Glasgow. Eddie, when you imagine this house and what might have been happening, you know, when you think about where these coins were hidden... Go back in time. What do you imagine? Um, so we we have this quite grand residence. Thinking about the, the kind of standards of the time, so we have probably quite high stone walls. Um, it has this really grand fireplace against one wall as well, which is is quite unique in this kind of era of of structures of this status, at least. Um, now the space we think is probably a kind of hunting lodge, so it's mm. a space where the the chief of the McDonald's could gather together his his kin, his his vassals, his tenants. And his peers, um, and entertain them with with grand hunts, with feasts afterwards, um, and with kind of the, the gambling and the drinking, um, <laughs> and the kind of consumption of of of, of the cattle and and that have been kind of brought in by his tenants as rent and the deer that are caught up on the hill as well. That's given me quite vivid images, uh, imagining that time and that place. These coins, thirty six of them in this collection, uh, would they have been used as as currency or put on display in these scenes that you're describing? Um, so, so we seem to have a little bit of a mix. So we have some coins um, which which clearly have been kind of curated together into a kind of coin collection. So we have we have coins that probably by the time of their deposition they're already a hundred years old, um, from the queen the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth of England. Um, but we also have coins that seem to have kind of travelled quite dis- quite considerable distances by the time they reached Glencoe. So we have coins from the Papal States in Rome, um, we have coins from the the Spanish Netherlands, from Spain itself, and from France. Um, and these, some of these perhaps tell a kind of story of the, the, the travels of McKean, the chief of the McDonald's, who we know was educated at the Scotch College in Rome um, and had also spent some time in Paris in his youth. So date-wise from the 1500s all the way through the, the 1680s, but I've seen some photographs, but for our listeners who haven't, just describe what some of them look like. Okay. Um, so we have some quite uh, large silver and, and copper coins uh, or bronze coins. Um most of them are really well preserved, actually. We think because it's kind of been sealed beneath that hearth, hearth slab of the, the fireplace and within this pot, which has a nice sort of 
circular stone as a lid, it's actually been protected from the worst of the, the kind of corrosion that would have occurred mm -hmm. if it had been exposed to too much moisture. So they're actually, they're really crisp coins, which is really wonderful to see. And the, and the, the pot that it was found in, was it traditionally used for, for storing coins or was it just in the, in the panic of whatever was happening at that time that they might have hidden them there? Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. The pot itself um, is a is a Scottish redware or perhaps a, a kind of British redware um, pottery style. So it's it's been produced in Britain, but it's in the style of a kind of continental pottery. So it has the kind of glazes that we'd expect and the kind of form of, of what might be quite a fancy uh, European pot potentially for this time period. What would it? What would that kind of pot be used for normally, though? It, it's it's potentially been used for the kind of importing either of. Um, kind of small quantities of liquid, so it might have been mm -hmm. for using uh, kind of lamp oil um, or potentially for the import of things like fortified wine, something that you're bringing in fairly small quantities because mm -hmm. it's quite a, a, a fine vessel, quite a precious vessel. So not only were these coins stashed in, in, this, in this precious vessel, as you say, it was hidden away in the fireplace in that building. Why do you think they were hidden? Um, so our current idea is that the coins were probably buried as part of the Glencoe Massacre either as kind of in advance of it, as a kind of precaution. So we know that the chief of the McDonald's, um, he sent the kind of unmarried women of his household um, and also told his clanmen to kind of go and hide their guns up to the hills and perhaps to, to dwellings like this one here. Mm. Um, so it's, it's potentially the case that he also sent up this quite valuable collection of coins up to his, his summer retreat as well and um, to keep them away from the soldiers who are going to be billeted in his towns. Credit goes, we should say, to one of the undergraduate students at the dig, Lucy Ankers. This was one of her first digs. Can you take us back? There's so much that's exciting about what you've and interesting about what you've what you've told us, but that moment must have been quite something. Oh, yes, ab absolutely. Quite, quite, a, quite a thrilling moment, um, certainly. Uh, so I, I was up on top of the, the, the kind of hill above the site, just on the kind of trench bank. And Lucy, who'd only been in that area of the, the excavation for perhaps five, ten minutes at that point. It was just after lunch, and it was pouring down with rain. And she, she kind of shouts up that, that she's found what she thinks is a pipe. Um, and that, that was quite unusual to my mind, so I, I kind of came down the hill to, to come in and have a look and inspect it. Um, and we worked out that it was actually a pot that seemed to be sitting in situ underneath that half mm -hmm. slab, so, so within this really secure deposit. And so we lifted the pot. Um, Lucy, Lucy carried out that, that aspect of the excavation, she lifted the, the kind of stone lid from within and peered inside, um, and there, just glistening from within the kind of soil within, um, was a few of the kind of silver pieces poking oh. out from the tufts. Um, <laughs> and it was a really, really exciting moment. Um, I, I, I tried to take a picture of the moment, but my uh, my, my hands were shaking somewhat with excitement, <laughs> and so the pictures are really, really awful. <laughs> well, we've got some we've got some in focus pictures now, thankfully, to accompany uh, your research yes. and the and the coverage. So, where does this rank in terms of of your experience at these digs? Um, so the sites I normally dig are, are, are the kind of summer shieldings in this wider landscape. And so they're the places where the kind of milkmaids would travel in the summer months. Um, and they're quite famously sterile of finds. So this is definitely the most finds I've ever found in it. I've ever seen found in an excavation um, of the type that, that I'm interested in. And, and certainly it's, it's a really high status site. So it really, really important, I think, for shaping our picture of this kind of elite activity within upland landscapes across Scotland which we have kind of attested to in documentary records, but we don't actually, I think, have any decent excavations from this time period um, to explore that aspect of life within these landscapes. Eddie, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for, for listening. Eddie Stewart is a PhD student at the University of Glasgow. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app.
Normally, the label made in Alberta would elicit a sense of pride and quality. But a new report on the state of inactive oil and gas wells in that province elicits less pleasant feelings. A report called A Made in Alberta Failure, issued by the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy, has found that successive governments and the Alberta Energy Regulator have failed the public. Using freedom of information requests, the researchers say they found a level of secrecy and industry influence that has left Albertans holding the cleanup bill for tens of thousands of wells, and now they want a public inquiry. Martin Olshinsky is an associate professor of law at the University of Calgary and co-author of the report. We reached him in Calgary. Martin, what words would you use to describe how Alberta has handled the issue of orphan wells? So I think the best way to describe it is Albertans being taken for a ride. How so? So, you you know, you can think you, you might you have these like three people in a car. You have the driver who is a sort of wild eyed person taking all kinds of risks, driving towards a cliff. Um, and, and I'm going to suggest that that's essentially like the oil and gas industry executives. Um, then you have this sort of like mild mannered driving instructor, regulator sitting in the shotgun, sort of, you know, having given the wheel to to the industry and just sort of like sitting there passively uh, as this is all happening. And then in the background, in the back seat, you have the passengers, which I kind of think of as Albertans. And they're sort of stunned and terrified and don't really know what to do about, you know, they, they see a cliff, but they don't really know what to do with it. And they certainly have no access to the levers, you know, to change anything. They're in the back. And so I think to my mind, when I think about the our, the work that we did here and the research mm-hmm. that we've done, I think that captures the situation most accurately. So if we do look at what's in, in your report, you talk about the relationship between the industry and the regulator. And one of your major concerns there is the issue of transparency or a lack of it, secrecy, really. What are some examples from your freedom of information requests? What we wanted to do here is, you know, I think the the facts of of the the impacts and the potential risks those are those are relatively well known. We have an auditor general report from this year uh, that that spelled some of that out. We have these other environmental sort of type pieces. We wanted to sort of explain, well, how did we get here? And so what we find over time is essentially over thirty years, like a series of, of just like a regular bilateral relationship in a sense, where the regulator meeting with industry. Uh, and discussing policies, discussing options, changing policies. You know, uh, at one point, in fact, there was actually a pretty good pro- program in place at the sort of just the turn of the century, and it was abruptly cancelled when it looked like it was going to cost industry some money. And so, we of course expect our regulators to meet with the regulated community, but but what we also expect is for the regulators to countenance that, counter that with at least input from the public, input from other stakeholders. And that's really what's missing in this context this whole time is is that those meetings occurred and rules were changed dramatically in some cases, and the public never was brought in to sort of weigh in on those problems. So what has that meant in terms of the, the final bill that taxpayers are left with then? Well, exactly. So what it what it did and what it does, I mean, so if you think that you have a regulator meeting almost exclusively with the regulated industry with broad discretion then of course it's not surprising to hear that eventually that discretion and those decisions are made in a way that favors that industry and so they have been very successful in minimizing their costs um in, in just punting basically these liabilities always down the road always into the future uh and now here we are suddenly where we have a 60 to 130 billion dollar liability on the landscape and we have less than 300 million dollars secured against that the question right that i think that that we're asking albertans to ask themselves is who's going to pick up that tab we requested a response from the alberta energy regulator uh, and in, they sent us a statement in response to us and, and your report the details in it and they said that the industry spent about $685 million uh, on closure activity. That's, they say, almost 40% more than they are required to do. And that there are also new requirements that will go uh, into place, you know, industry-wide, which means $700 million will be spent in, in 2023-2024. So they say they're, they're spending this money. They're doing the work. There's more scrutiny now than there has been in in probably 10 years on this issue and so yes we have seen some incremental some marginal improvement from the regulator as you say uh we went from 400 million to 700 million but but to point out that that's an entirely discretionary exercise like the regulator can change it tomorrow 
and there's nothing that we can do or say about it. The law is written in such a broad way, and it gives the regulators so much power. So, for instance, it was supposed to be something like 740 or 750 million this year, and they've already backed down and dropped it back to 700. If we're talking about 60 billion as a conservative number, we're talking about 50, 60 years from now to get this problem sorted, right? And 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 I think is that a realistic thing to assume if we're talking about net zero policies being adopted around the world, electrification? So. The idea that we would backload these liabilities and spread them out over the next 50, 60 years just seems to me like uh, completely completely divorced from the very clear signals that we're getting internationally uh, that oil demand will decline as a result of climate change policies. What does the oil and gas industry, in your view, owe the province at this point? I think they do owe Albertans an explanation. Of course, Alberta has benefited from uh, oil and gas production. But I, I think the question comes down to sort of like, well, who benefited and how much? Now we're talking about these costs and, and, and you get the sense already that industry is suggesting that Albertans should foot some of the bill, that they should accept these costs, right? So it's that classic problem of privatizing the profits and socializing the losses, right? And, and so I think there's just like a basic notion, basic issue of fairness there. Like why why is that the case? And I think relatedly, of course, the bargain was always that they would clean it up. And what we've seen over the past 25 years is essentially like a reneging on that part of the bargain. And is that fair? You, you want a public inquiry. Those cost money, as you know, and they also take time. So, you know, how do you think it will actually help solve the problems you're trying to tackle here? What the regulator has shown and the and, and consecutive governments have shown is that they are incapable of dealing with this issue, that when left to their own devices, they will always fall back on that cozy relationship with the industry and that they are unprepared, frankly, to make the difficult or to even examine the difficult policy choices that are facing us going forward. So so a public policy would a public inquiry, sorry, would really give an opportunity for that to be done in an independent transparent and expert-driven way so that we can have this discussion. And, you know, and it may be, you know, going back to your other point, Albertans might decide that it was worth it, that, you know, the, the, the provincial sales tax holiday that we've had for however many years, that that was worth it and we're prepared to take this on the nose. But they can't have that debate properly right now because mm-hmm. we don't have all of the information about how we got to this point and what are our options going forward and what will be the effects of that. Martin, thank you. You're very welcome. Martin Olshinsky is an associate professor of law at the University of Calgary and co-author of the report, A Made in Alberta Failure. He's in Calgary. We contacted the province of Alberta for comment, but we did not receive a response by airtime. It was made for sitting, but a precariously balanced chair in New Jersey is standing strong. The chair has been teetering improbably atop a dilapidated house for a surprisingly long time, and its location on the way to the Jersey Shore has made it an unofficial touchstone for tourists and locals alike who find themselves wondering just how long it can possibly hang on. And now that seat on the edge has fans on the edge of their seats. Tony DiMeglio is a frequent visitor to the area who's been fascinated by the chair for years. This summer, he started Chair Watch, a Facebook group dedicated to watching the chair. We reached Mr. DiMeglio in Philadelphia. How's the chair doing today, Tony? (laughs) Well, all reports are that the chair is doing well. Still dangling? Still dangling, still hanging on with all its magical might. It is it is a sight to behold. I was just looking at some video of it. But how did it first catch your eye? What were you doing? Um, I drive back and forth past this chair every weekend on my way from Philadelphia down to Cape May, New Jersey, where my summer home is. And um, it's always been an older building, older dilapidated building. And then after one storm, the roof literally blew off of the entire house, exposing the attic and all the contents. And then, you know, driving back and forth, you notice one day, hey, look at that chair. It's on the edge of the house. I yeah. wonder how long it's going to last. And how long so far has it been up there? It's been three years, right? Teetering wow. on the edge um, through storms, through hurricanes, tornadoes, straight winds, um, blizzards in the wintertime, and it's it's still there and it's still hanging on. 
I feel like the the expression they don't make them like they used to applies maybe to this chair. Absolutely, absolutely, and and then also living on the edge. <laughs> I have to say though, so this is a completely abandoned home. I mean, the bones of it. Just on another topic, the bones of it are kind of nice. I'm surprised somebody hasn't decided to renovate it. Yeah, the the home is. Uh, it's my understanding that the home is owned by an individual, but it is in a, a matter of severe disrepair there was a fire in the home in the mm-hmm. 70s and then um it was purchased and resold and now the the current owner is uh hoping to tear it down someday to build a business okay it, it strikes me that halloween is approaching it's already been several halloweens i'm sure does it become a, a, a an added site at that time of year as well <laughs> you would think so i mean mm-hmm. uh, it's funny because a bunch of our members have produced uh some really great Halloween photos of the house. Um, there's been some AI-generated photos with, you know, pumpkins and things in the yard, and then there's been AI-generated photos with ghosts and people in the windows, and some really neat, some really neat artwork has come out of it. The 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 members you talk about, that's the face, Facebook group, right? Chair Watch. That's right. These are our members that Chair Watch, the uh, Facebook group that I generated on a whim, with uh, no idea that things were going to go the way they have. And uh, I really just can't believe it. How many members now? Uh, we're quick. We're on our way to nine thousand members. So why do you think it's, it's so compelling for you and everybody else? Um, I feel like everybody's really drawn to it right now because it's something so simple and satisfying, and you know, just pleasant to to keep an eye on. It's not political, you know, with everything going on in the world today with politics and now war and and. It's just something that's it's fun, and people can focus on something silly for a short period of time in their day. And something that's been able to withstand so much, I guess people take something from that too, I bet. Absolutely. People have gleaned a lot of, uh, people have tried to take away, you know, you got to hang on, and, you know, if the chair can keep going, so can I. You know, we've heard a lot of different things from a lot of different people, and it's, you know, if some people want to take motivation from it or whatever they need to do, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's there to, to help them get through their day. Is there one meme um, or post that that tops everything for you? <laughs> uh, there's one for me personally. You know, it's, it's funny. It's um, it's a meme that the storm, the, the chair can't weather the storm, and the chair responded that I am the storm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. How long? How much longer do you think it can last? I think I think the chair. The chair has the power to last as long as, you know, to, to never come down. I'm more worried about the house underneath it coming down before the chair blows off. But are you nervous, though, if, if you know, whatever happens, maybe the chair survives, but a wall does come down. Are you nervous <laughs> for that day? You think you'll be sad? Well, I mean, you know, probably. I mean, you know, it'll, it'll be the, the end of a story. You know, it's something that we can entertain now. And then once it's over, it's over. You know, but what we're hoping is that we can... Uh, get our hands on the chair when it does eventually come down and give it a rightful send-off. You know, some people oh. are talking about a charity event. Some people are talking about, you know, burying it. Some people are, you know, there's a lot of goofy things. I personally feel like the chair should get a Viking funeral. <laughs> and what would that entail for those who don't know what a Viking funeral is? Because some people feel well, we're, maybe we're, the Smithsonian has to set aside a, a space for this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, a Viking funeral, proper send-off. The chair needs to be placed on a on a on a pyre on a boat and set off into a lake somewhere and lit on fire and let it go down that way. Why? Why so dramatic? Well, I mean, it, it seems fitting, doesn't it? I mean, this whole <laughs> thing is silly, so let's can, let's let it be silly right to the very end. Let's punctuate it with some more drama. Absolutely. Well, Tony, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Tony Demeglio is the founder of the Facebook group Chair Watch. We reached him in Philadelphia. Ten years ago today, a Toronto band released a song that would eventually hit number one on the Billboard charts, a powerful indictment of patriarchy, or at least one particular dad, perhaps the only hit song addressed to a reluctant father-in-law whose cruel rejection of a yearning suitor prompts this plaintive query. 
Rude by Magic, unleashed on an unsuspecting world on October 11th, 2013. Now, initially, the world responded much like the dad in the song, no, and get off my porch. But eight months later, the record company re-released Rude, and this time... The world gave the song its blessing, and then the world married the song and played it at the wedding reception, and the honeymoon has continued to this day. You may find that analogy slightly confusing, but you also may find the enormous success of Rude confusing. You might think it's it's slight or terrible. You might take issue with its light reggae stylings. You might be baffled by the guitar solo, which, to refresh your memory, goes like this. I mean, like, wh- what, what, what is happening? Anyway, you may have gotten sick of Rude 10 years ago, or you may be one of the people who've helped the video get 2.4 billion views and counting on YouTube. Or maybe your opinion is best summed up by music critic Stephen Hyden, who described it as the best, worst song of the 21st century so far. And if you're not sure how you feel about it, you're about to find out. Here's our 10th anniversary airing of Rude by Magic. It is loved abroad, but why we don't respect it a yard? Part of the legacy of our colonial past is the belief that the Jamaican language created by our own people is somehow unworthy and only to be spoken by those who can do better. It is time to move beyond that negative and backward way of thinking. That was Jamaican opposition leader Mark Golding speaking at a PNP party convention a few weeks ago, calling for recognition of Jamaican as an official language. Also known as Patois or Jamaican Creole, the language incorporates elements of African and European languages and has elements that have spread around the globe through music and pop culture. Joseph Farquharson is a linguist with the University of the West Indies who's also working as the chief editor of the Dictionary of the Jamaican Language. We reached him in Kingston, Jamaica. Joseph, what message do you think it would send to the rest of the world if if Jamaica officially recognizes the Jamaican language as one of its official languages? Well, given Jamaica's visibility globally, I believe it would really be powerful because there are quite a few other countries like Jamaica who have a similar sort of history. And so I believe if Jamaica, with its global visibility, takes this step, it would open up a path for many other countries in a similar situation. I know many of our listeners will know the sound of Jamaican English, or patois, as some call it, as you know. What makes it distinct? Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) There's a whole lot. Um, That's a difficult question to answer because there's a whole lot that makes it distinct. It's definitely distinct in terms of its pronunciation. Mm -hmm. Um, So even if we take over a word from English, and notice I'm saying English, I'm not saying standard English, Mm -hmm. because the basis of the language is not standard English. It's Um, dialects of British English, which were around in the 17th century, that came into contact with African languages that helped to form the the language. So the pronunciation is different, definitely. Then there are many aspects of the grammar of the language that are different. So there are things that are done in Jamaican that are not done in in English and are not done in standard varieties of English. What makes it a distinct language as opposed to a dialect? Ah, that's a difficult question. And it's a political, it's an ideological mm-hmm. question. And although as you know, as a linguist I spend my time, you know, studying languages, including mm-hmm. the Jamaican language, I'm not sure if there's a good linguistic answer for that. It's going to go back to politics that those people who have political and economic and in some cases military power get to determine that what they speak is a language and not a dialect. Yeah, I guess I never thought of of dialect, you know, in the general sense as a pejorative, but you're saying it can Mm. be wielded in this way. For most of the history of the Jamaican language, it has suffered 
under the name of dialect, specifically because it was seen as, you know, substandard, broken, mm-hmm. not proper, not good enough, etc. So dialect does have pejorative connotations for many people. What are Jamaican school children taught about the language right now? To the extent that they are taught anything about the language itself, and it may not be explicit, but um, sometimes what is telegraphed by teachers is that the language is bad, it's not good enough. And this is an issue because that's the language that most children enter the school system with. Um, And so they turn up to school already with a language and the system treats them as if they are dumb because the system wants to give them another language or what the system sees as the language. What would it mean, you know, for for this change to be made, not just in schools, but when we talk about hospitals and courts, the institutions mm-hmm. of Jamaica, that's that would be a huge shift from what you're describing. So what kind of impact would that have? We are we'd be looking at full participation of all Jamaicans. And it's it's difficult to say this because for those Jamaicans who you know, have this facility in English, you know, who operate in English very well. They very often labor under the belief that everybody is like them, that everybody understands English. Um, They're taught English in schools and so on, um, which is clearly not the case. Um, And we see that because lots of people feel excluded from certain spaces. Um, There are patients who report that they can't understand what their doctors say to them. And then it might be a life and death situation, life or death situation. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in, in the courtrooms, people may not know what is going on around them, although they need to understand in order to be able to defend themselves or organize for their defense. Now, doctors, nurses, lawyers, judges, if they feel so inclined, will switch to Jamaica, but it's left up to them. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the system that says, if this person is a speaker of Jamaican, you need to um, talk to them in Jamaican. And in fact, in Jamaica, although there's provision under the law for people to get an interpreter if they don't speak English, because the Jamaican language is seen as a variety of English, it's Jamaican people who end up not being able to access that right to an interpreter. In their own country. In their own country. Joseph, thank you for your time. Thanks very much for inviting me. Joseph Farkerson is a linguist with the University of the West Indies and the chief editor of the Dictionary of the Jamaican Language. He's in Kingston, Jamaica. You have to be a certain type of person to willingly have soccer balls aggressively launched at you on a regular basis. But that is the life Michael Quinn chose, or the life that chose him. Mr. Quinn was once a professional goalie, and soccer wasn't just part of his sporting life. It has also been central to his academic life. He has a master's degree in behavioral neuroscience from University College Dublin. While he was an undergrad at the nearby Dublin City University, he did research on how goalies' brains work differently. The results have now been published in the journal Current Biology. We reached him in Straffan, Ireland. Michael, for those of us who have not been goalies, what does it feel like when, you know, you're you're playing a key match and you're trying to stop your competitors from scoring? Um, yeah, it can be uh, a little stressful, to say the least. Um, <laughs> it's total focus oftentimes. You're kind of in the flow state, totally unaware of what's going on around you. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's quite an anxious state, in all honesty. Um, okay. You're just kind of trying to anticipate what's going to happen next and how can you, um, I suppose, prevent them from scoring. You know, I have to say, whenever I watch a football match or a soccer match, depending on where you're watching from, I worry the most about the goalies. I'm anxious for you. I feel bad for them when, when they do let a goal in. So just know that some of us out there are are concerned about your well-being too. But <laughs> did you even before this research did you feel that goalies were were kind of a different breed? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously football over here, soccer, potentially where you guys are based. I think across a lot of sports, you know, sports that have a goalkeeper. Uh, I know in ice hockey, there's a similar kind of a narrative that goalkeepers are a little bit crazy or they're a bit different. They're kind of the drummer of the band, so to speak. Um, just from spending any amount of time with a group of goalkeepers, you'll, you'll recognize pretty quickly these people see the world a bit different. So, yeah, that was kind of the, I suppose, the base for why we did the research. Yeah, just tell me what what is it about them that, that makes makes you think they see the world differently what what hints are they giving uh, well they tend to be i mean totally separate to our research they tend to be pretty quick characters yeah. um obviously you have to be crazy to go and goal. you're the guy <laughs> literally getting between the ball or the puck and the goal so um let's let's just have that out right in terms of look our research that we did yeah. we performed a test that sees how people basically how they integrate information given to them through different senses to perform a task so in goalkeeping the goalkeepers, rather, who took part in this test, it was shown that they're much better at fine-tuning information from different senses to complete a task, basically, is the simple way of putting it. We did a test called the Sound-Induced Flash Illusion. I'd love to say it's some sort of really complex, um, you know, crazy, sophisticated experiment. <laughs> in reality, it's just quite a tedious task. But um, essentially what it involved was sitting in a dark room in front of the screen, and you're presented with either one or two flashes of a circle in the middle of the screen, and that's paired with either one or two beats. So when the flashes and the beeps are synchronous, so whether it's one flash, one beep, two flashes, two beeps, that's easy. Everybody gets those right. But when you make it asynchronous, so when it's one flash paired with two beeps or two flashes paired with one beep, that's where things get a little bit more interesting. And essentially, depending on how far apart those beeps are timed with the flash, people can fall for the illusion that they've seen maybe two flashes because they heard two beeps. You know, given the simplicity of the test, as you said, why do you think no one has conducted this research before? To be honest with you, we aren't 100% sure. We're kind of grateful they hadn't in a way for yeah. our own selfish kind of uh, point of view. But people have done this test uh, more so in areas like uh, expertise, particularly with musicians. So there's been research with elite level musicians um, and how they perform in this test relative to, um, we'll say, non-musicians or, you know, your average uh, average human being. We kind of took inspiration from that and applied it to our obviously chosen subjects. Um, I was also very lucky in truth. It's quite a niche experience. Um, I was lucky that through the DCU School of Psychology, mm -hmm. Dr. David McGovern, who was my supervisor, had quite a lot of experience with it. So I suppose it was just a perfect storm in a way. What about other sports, but also female goalkeepers? Absolutely. Look, this was the kind of preliminary research. In truth, it was... Um, you know, at the height of the pandemic, and it was quite difficult to recruit at that time. We recruited through a lot of my personal contacts, so it would have been um, literally, as I was coming off the field, asking guys would they give me 40 minutes of their time. So it was very uh, difficult, and it was kind of a convenient sampling, for want of a better word. But we're very, very aware that the next steps of this project will, of course, involve, you know, female athletes, obviously youth athletes too, to kind of answer that whole nature versus nurture question that's been kind of rearing up. But yeah, definitely... We're very aware, and then other sports too. You mentioned nature versus nurture, Michael. So what is it that makes goalies better at this test? Um, so to be honest with you, the research we have doesn't really speak to that. Uh, the data doesn't really speak to that. It just tells us that there is a difference. Now, we all have our own point of view on this. Um, I suppose either way, it's quite exciting. Look, if it's nature, which personally I don't believe it is, mm -hmm. but if it is nature, then it's a case that you can identify at quite a young age somebody who has the capacity to become an elite level goalkeeper through their ability on a test like this. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they will be, but it might just kind of give you an indication that they have the, um, I suppose, the capabilities go on and do so personally i don't subscribe to that as much i believe it's more the latter i think it's um the repeated training the constant kind of day-to-day -day spend trying to pick up on cues as to what's going to happen next that ultimately fine-tunes this process um i can speak from a very subjective example myself and mm -hmm. say when i was training back when i was a few pounds lighter <laughs> that when uh something would fall out of the press or, you know, maybe a, a cup would fall from above. I would catch it without even thinking. Whereas now I will fumble that, it will fall, smash everywhere. So it's it's that kind of match sharpness or game sharpness that we feel is kind of why these goalkeepers perform so well. And um, we would like to think that down the road we could use a tool like this or inspired by this to develop a test that shows, you know, when a player's come back from injury and maybe physically they look good, are they mentally there? Are they match sharp, so to speak? What are your goalkeeper friends telling you now that this this research has been released? Are they are they, you know, boasting even more? 
Absolutely. Uh, it's rare <laughs> goalkeepers get a win. <laughs> to be brutally honest, you're usually the uh, the pantomime villain. So. Your dad, uh, football fans will know some of them, that is Niall Quinn. He played in the Premier League. How is how is he feeling about your work? Yeah, he's he's very proud and kind of delighted, I suppose. Um, yeah, look, he would have been a massive inspiration to me growing up and probably a big reason why I went on to, uh, you know, to have a bit of a career as a professional footballer. Also, you know, even though he never played in goal, he will tell me what goalkeeper should and shouldn't be doing. He's got some very strong opinions <laughs> on that. So, you know, it's been nice to be able to turn around and say, well, actually, you know, there's a little bit of science behind this. But um He's very proud, as are kind of all my family, thankfully. And uh, yeah, I think excited to see what comes next from the project. Michael, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was former professional soccer player Michael Quinn. He's also the lead author of a study on goalies published in the journal Current Biology. He's in Straffan, Ireland. Now here comes the big one, the National Research Council official time signal. The beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of silence indicates exactly 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. A few different iterations of the now discontinued long dash, which is not long for this world. In fact, if you heard yesterday's show, you know that we've heard the last of the National Research Council time signal, which aired on CBC Radio to mark 1 p.m. Eastern Time every day. Listeners first started hearing that signal in 1939. It was the longest-running segment on CBC Radio, but because of all the many ways our service is delivered nowadays, the time signal may no longer be accurate. And as you know, it's a lot easier to know what time it is at all times than it was back then. Yesterday, Neil spoke to Malika Panic. She's an artist in Toronto who made a popular illustration honoring the long dash. Neil asked her how she felt about that always timely dash becoming a late dash. It's very sad, I think. I mean, it has been running for so long. And um, I mean, it doesn't take up that much time. So (laughs) I feel, yeah, I think a lot of people will be sad to see it go. She was right. You called and wrote in with your thoughts about the end of a bleeping era. Rosie, just Rosie, (laughs) like Cher, I assume, wrote to say, when I heard the time signal was no more, I went back to many days in my adolescence and young adulthood that were very chaotic. And the one thing that I could always count on never changing was knowing once a day what time it really was. It always brought comfort and stability in an unstable world. I'm sorry to see the time signal go. And a lot of you felt the same way. So here are some of your brief thoughts on the long dash. My name is Lucia Pelosi, and I'm from Toronto. So when I was a little girl, I thought that that sound was really menacing. And I was always really frightened of it. But I remember hearing it when I would be in the kitchen with my mom. She was always an avid listener of CBC. And I understand why it's being discontinued but I will miss it profoundly. Hello, as it happens, this is Joel Ginsburg calling from Ottawa. I want you to know how much I enjoyed the NRC time signal. In fact, it was my favorite time of day, aside from sleeping. Oh, hi, my name is Susan, and the reason for my call is that I'm really going to miss the long dash. It's stable, it's comforting, it just, it's just kind of like a hug. Hello, my name is Maria Farquharson. I was born in Peru, and they also have their this same thing that you give this tone, and at the end of the tone is the 18 hours official time. And I remember when I was a kid, we did not have enough money to have a watch or a clock in the house. And we did not have a TV. We only had a small radio. And that was a connection with the world. Hi there. It's Don Thomas calling from Nelson House, Manitoba. Maybe, just for old time's sake, you can play the, uh, the national time signal on your program.
That was an astonishingly I, poignant series of memories about a beeping sound. Everything from a hug to menacing uh, uh, and still loving. We have the best <laughs> listeners. Absolutely. Uh, thanks to everyone who wrote and called about losing the long dash. And you still have plenty of time, even if you're not sure what time it is, to <laughs> share your eulogies. Call our talkback line at 416-205-5687 and leave a voicemail. Or send an email to aih at cbc.ca. And as requested by Don Thomas, here is the NRC time signal one more time. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.